Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am so excited to welcome my friend Margie Conklin to leave your mark. Margie, it's so great to see you. It's been too long. (laughs) I know. I miss our lunches. I do too. For everyone listening, Margie is a storytelling expert who has set the editorial agenda at some of the world's most famous brands in both the U.S. and the U.K., including Elle in Style, Daily Mail, Harper's Bazaar. She is currently the very well-known editor of the Sunday edition of the New York Post, which is a must read if you (laughs) certainly are a New Yorker and probably well beyond New York. As the Sunday editor of the New York Post, Margie leads her team on its enterprising stories, which have resulted in multiple AP and Deadline Club awards, including Best Columnist and Best Investigation. Margie was also named one of New York Observer's most poachable players in media. That is quite the title. And you are an ex-glossy magazine girl living in a tabloid world, and she specializes in a range of topics, including news, politics, opinion, my favorite, investigations, human interest, books, celebrity, lifestyle, luxury content for both digital and print. You recently started a newsletter for The Post as well, which is on Mm -hmm. fire. Mm -hmm. And you're also a mentor for the Opportunity Network, an organization that helps undersupported New York City school kids level the playing field at college and at work. And she has started also a storytelling consultancy on a pro bono basis, which we're going to talk about when we get to this later. <laughs> it is for women who are trying to launch their own businesses or expand their brands. And truly, I have known Margie for many years now, and you are such a laser sharp editor with your finger just always on that pulse. And I know that, you know, many people just admire your work. So I'm so excited to share your your career story today. I almost believe my own hype now. This is fantastic. (laughs) You should believe your own hype. (laughs) So it's so funny because I feel like we've had the pleasure of working together. We've had the pleasure of lunching together working on different stories together. And Mm -hmm. I always find it amazing that I don't really know that much about your background. So I just want to start a little bit about where you grew up and sort of what you were like, little Margie. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a not very sophisticated part of upstate New York, Uh, more cows than people, Schoharie County. (laughs) Uh, My parents, who are both from Long Island, fancied the idea of owning a farmhouse. 
but with no animals, just to, you know, live in a house with a barn. And my dad commuted 40 minutes away to Schenectady at General Electric while I went to school at the biggest school in the county where it was just 100 people per year. So I had a very small class that I grew up with, and I did enjoy it because I, I actually wanted to travel and see the world and meet people who are different from me. And it was quite homogenous growing up in a rural upstate county. But looking back now that it's many decades ago, I actually think there was some benefit in that and really seeing a kind of America that I think a lot of my contemporaries have never experienced. So when I, you know, grew up, I was like desperate to travel, desperate to leave upstate New York, desperate to go to college far away from home. And I did all that. And I met amazing people along the way. I just, I think a lot of them had never experienced what I experienced, which was cool in a way to have something unique. Yeah. Um, And you probably appreciate it a lot more now than back then. Oh yeah. Well, I appreciate it because I don't have to experience it every day. It just didn't suit me. But um, I also think, and I know we probably don't, want to get too political on this podcast, but just, you know, understanding a little bit about what happened in 2016 with the election and knowing the kind of people who were attracted to a certain kind of political approach. And it wasn't a shock in a way to me, although it wasn't my predilection. I kind of thought, oh, I I kind of understand this a little bit. And I think that was an advantage in a way. So yeah, um, that's where I grew up, um, and I wanted to get far away, so I I went to college near Chicago. Um, I studied journalism at Northwestern University, and that was terrific. There I found my place, my sweet spot with people that I really felt like I understood and were my people. <laughs> you knew you wanted to get into journalism even as a young person, or did you decide that like high school? Yeah, I, I knew it at fifth grade. I figured it out in fifth grade. We had an essay kind of challenge from the teacher who said, you know, tell us what you want to do with your life and why. And I wrote, I convinced myself with this essay. I was so persuasive. I was like, I like people. I like travel. I like words. I'm curious. I like reading. I like writing. I can only be one thing. It'll be a journalist. And that was it. And uh, I never kind of swayed from that. And that's why I pursued journalism as a major and as a career. I had, I had no plan B. That was it for me. And in some ways, I felt that that was a real advantage to know exactly what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of young people struggle knowing where to go and what to do. And I, I was always like kind of smug, I guess, like, oh, yeah, I know what I want to be. But I have to say, it's not always, and that's a later in life thing, a total advantage, just be hooked on one career pursuit. Because you know, actually having lots of talents and lots of ideas and lots of things you want to pursue is an advantage nowadays. So, you know, there's positives and negatives to both. But I guess my first question would be sort of fork in the road, writer versus editor. How did you decide which way to go on that? That is a really good question. Um, I was, I'd say about 24. I was so sure I was going to be a writer, like a journalist reporter. Because you go out on assignments, you talk to people, you interview them, you write up the story. And I enjoy all of that. And then when I was at my first magazine in London, my first proper job, there was an opportunity to kind of like 
take on more editing duties, which is when you basically take other people's stories and you make them more cogent and uh, you give them structure and you learn how to sell a story to the reader. You also would like, you think of photos to go with it and how to package it. And I actually said out loud, I don't think there's anything different between a writer and an editor. I said this out loud in front of another editor. And she was like, you know, they're really different skills, actually. They're really different. It really stuck with me. I was like, I don't see how that's possible. It's like words. You're just working with words. She was entirely right. Writing is a very solitary. Actually, you have one person, you do the interview and you, you do the bits of reporting, but then you sit down in front of the blank page and you compose and then you send it off. And then it's, you kind of, without, you have questions from the editor, but beyond that, you move it on to someone else. The editor takes total responsibility for how that piece is communicated to an audience. And that can be not just in the print form, but on web. You can package it a million different ways. It's how you sell it with a headline, what kind of photos you pick. You have a lot of control over how a story is read and consumed. And I actually loved the control part, I have to say. Like, that's the thing that maybe I'm a control freak. Uh, in fact, I know I am. I just, <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe. I, I am a control freak. I just love the idea of being able to oversee it all and have a whole vision, uh, not just for a story, but for a series of stories in an issue and really put it all together and think about rhythm and flow and an experience, really. So here is a very specific question. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have a personal preference for seeing that control play out visually still in print over digital? Okay, so it's really interesting. I've got to the point now where I love both. There is something very satisfying about seeing a printed product. There's something kind of bespoke and special and unique about it. And, you know, to have something physical and tangible, it's kind of like a little keepsake of your work. And I do love that. But I also get such a kick out of seeing every story that I have produced with my designer online and how it gets engaged with an audience and, you know, how many minutes they spend reading it. Uh, when does it click? Where does it get picked up? Seeing the rise and fall of the traffic and seeing where that's coming from. Sometimes it's unwanted. You're like, oh, God, they picked it up. Oh, no. That <laughs> You're like, oh, geez. Or it dies on the vine. You're like, oh, I love that story. I really, I'm quite disappointed. That was one of my, my little children. It did not perform. If it dies on the vine and you're seeing it happen in real time, will you resuscitate it with a new headline to see if it works better? Yes, we will do that. You absolutely can do that. You find ways to promote it. Um, we sometimes will do a Facebook post if we think it will be shared on that platform. And sometimes it takes off. Sometimes it doesn't. You try different things. So yeah, you, you can absolutely try a new cell. And we do do that. We have actually, I think, three or four different headlines that we usually play with anyway. There's a search engine optimization headline, which our SEO department know exactly, you know, what people are searching for at a given time. And we try to tap into that. And then there's that very clicky New York Post headline. That you're like, I just I got to find out what that's about. And those are the ones I love coming up with. It's just like, what's going to make someone click, but also deliver on the promise. You can't do clickbait. But they are so clever. They're so clever. Wait, so Margie, how did you get your first job? <laughs> All right. So I used to be kind of embarrassed to reveal how I got my first job. It was actually 
at college, I met a British man who became my boyfriend and he actually went to business school. And when I graduated, he invited me to come to the UK and I'd always wanted to live abroad. You know, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I also was in a relationship with this man. I thought, absolutely. And you had to get away from the cows. <laughs> <laughs> I was never going back to the cows. That was never an option. Never. So he was part of a family business. They ran a chain of car dealerships in the northeast of England in a town called Newcastle upon Tyne. And they happened to advertise with the local paper, his company, and they had a word and enabled me to get an internship, which was not a living wage, really. I was living with my boyfriend, but I was getting experience and I was always embarrassed to reveal this to people because it's like, oh, right. I got a job. Well, you got a job for your boyfriend. But you still had to do it once you got there. And I did. I actually broke local news. I actually got some front page exclusives. And pretty soon before, I, you know, before you know it, people have forgotten about my association. And I think now my lesson to everyone is anyone coming up, it doesn't matter what contact you have, use your, all your contacts all your friends, your boyfriend, you know, your second aunt removed, whatever, like anyone could be a potential job opportunity. So don't be embarrassed about working yeah, with I agree. There's nothing to be embarrassed. And I also think, what do they say? It doesn't matter how you got there. It's how you stay there, right? Or something that's more eloquent than what I just said. <laughs> you, have to, you have to be able to do the job once you get there, even if someone hooks you up with the position. You got to prove yourself. And I was so eager and keen and I just soaked up every single lesson that I could while I was there. And I had great editors around me who were so encouraging and taught me so much. And actually, it was a terrific experience. You know, a lot of people would be like, oh, my God, you ended up in the northeast of England. You didn't want to be in London. I mean, I did want to be in London. I eventually did move there. But it was a great training ground to be somewhere that was a bit of a smaller market and to really learn about, you know, local things going on in a town that I think a lot of Americans and a lot of other even British people don't know about. So, you know, it was a great experience. So my big question is, how long did you date this guy? And when did you break up? How soon after that job? <laughs> wait, wait, is this a dating podcast all of a sudden? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I know, because I think, you know, people want to know, did it blow up? And did it eventually go away? Because he's not your husband. No. Uh, well, it took its course, for sure. Uh, we were together for six years. Wow. A terrific guy. Um, of course, because I wanted to move to London. And also, I was seven years younger than him. And, you know, he wanted a family and he wanted to move on and with his life. And um, I wasn't ready for any of that. So we did split up, but it was very amicable and he was very supportive. And I think he realized that I just, I wasn't going to stay around in Newcastle. I, I had to move on and try bigger things. So did you move to another job within the UK before yeah, you came so, out? So, yeah, I was actually in the UK for a total of 11 years. I was surprised that it went on that long and I loved it. It was wonderful, wonderful place to learn journalism, the trade. They have such an aggressive newspaper market there. I mean, their newspapers are read by millions. They have something like at the time it was like maybe 10 competing national papers and really good stories, great scoops, great journalistic kind of culture. Everyone reads papers there even now. So I actually applied to 99 outlets from actually, that little paper. Oh, 99. I counted them all. 
99. I got like, it was just pre-internet. So I got a book of all like the magazines and newspapers that I could possibly validly apply for in London. And I applied to 99 of them and I tailored each one to hopefully kind of catch their eye. I was very desperate, like, not desperate. That's not the word. I was just keen. I was like, yeah, I'm you're dedicated. Dedicated. Anyway, uh, 99 applications, two interviews. Wow. And I really wanted one. I really wanted one of those two jobs. That wasn't the one I got. I got a job as a writer reporter at this weekly magazine, a tabloid magazine called Take a Break. It was read at the time by over 2 million women a week. So supermarket tabloid, it's all about true life stories and puzzles and kind of like Jerry Springer on the printed page. Um, <laughs> I kind of love it. Actually, I did too. And by the way, my first proper job in London is where I made all of my closest work friends. I met my now husband. I'm still very, very close to many of the people I work with there. It was a terrific experience. I had a bit of a tyrant of a boss. How so? He played people off each other. He played mind games with people. He always had the threat of possibly firing you, wielded over mm -hmm. your head. And on top of that, I would say that he transgressed the rules of um, sexual harassment and other oh, things wow. like that. How did you handle it? First of all, it helped to have a, a really united workforce of women who were terrific friends, who we all saw it the same way, and we supported each other through it. I don't know how much of this will go on now, post Me Too, post pandemic, but there was a lot of socializing out of the office, you know, and there's mm -hmm. a drinking culture, especially in the UK. And it was fun, actually. I really enjoyed it. But I went to a wedding for a, a colleague and he uh, came up to me. We were in a room uh, suddenly in the lobby, just happened to be at the same, in the same place at the same time. And he kissed me with his tongue. And then he pulled me into the men's bathroom. <laughs> oh my God. You, I ran away. You ran away. Yeah. I did. I ran away. Um, but it was like a shock. And actually, it's amazing. This was like how many years ago? 23 years ago. I knew something was wrong, but it took a while for that all to kind of connect because uh, I felt it in my belly, but it wasn't making sense in my head. And all of my girlfriends and well, everybody who I work with was like, that's sexual harassment and you have to complain. So you did. I did. I did. And you? it was a really scary thing to do because it was my first job and I was an American in a foreign land. And I was worried about how it would be perceived that I was like this prissy American who couldn't handle the culture. And, yeah. you know, it didn't matter that he'd done it to other people. But um, anyway, and I was worried that my next place of employment would judge me for it. But they were wonderful and supportive, actually. And they said, you know, because I moved on to a glossy magazine called New Woman, which was a very magazine about mm -hmm. female empowerment. And they acted exactly in keeping with the vision of the magazine. They were like really supportive of me. So, you know, it's just interesting. I kind of buried what happened. And when everything came back with me, too, I remembered that I'd also been sexually harassed <laughs> because, you know, you kind of. It's yeah, traumatic. You block, it, you block it out. But I'm so super impressed at that young age that you have the courage to, first of all, run away. Because sometimes I feel like in situations like that, you're so shocked that you actually are paralyzed and, yeah. and you don't do anything because you actually haven't registered yet what happened. Right. But to actually take it up with like HR or management or whomever, I think is so admirable. And I'm, thank you for sharing that because I think that. There are sure. probably a lot of people out there who 
are scared to, who are listening I, to this and probably think their bosses are inappropriate too. I mean, I have to say, I really hope not, given the way the cultural shift has happened. I feel like anyone who tries this stuff now is insane. Like the boss that I had was insane, actually, and and, and that's part of the problem. He just didn't understand the rules of good conduct. Yeah. But I think he also just thought it was part of the fun. Aren't we all just having a good time kind of thing? Yeah. I think, well, first of all, going back to your original statement, yes, people are crazy. So I do believe that there are people <laughs> out there who are still acting in the same way. And I also think there's like a power trip to it also. Yeah. It's like they're the boss and they can sort of do what they want. Totally. And I think that's especially true in creative fields. You know, you get points for being a little bit eccentric because then you're a genius. Mm-hmm. And I would actually say that my editor was gifted, actually. I learned a lot from him. So, and I think that, you know, the tendency was to look away from the kind of the less appropriate behavior because he did get the job done. That's the name of the game for so many people who have gotten called out, right? Especially right. in creative. It's an excuse, right. but it's not. You know. It was seen as kind of part of the bargain. If you work in a creative industry, you're just going to deal with crazy people. Yeah. And I'm so happy that the millennial generation has called BS on that because I guess Gen X just, when we entered the wet workforce, we're probably the first workforce, you know, where women, so many women were really flooding the workforce in huge numbers. And we probably just thought, oh, this is how it is. Yeah. You know, this is how it's done. Uh, but kudos to the next generation for saying, like, you know what? Why? We don't have to put up with this rule book. It's we true. all benefit from that. So you eventually decide to go back to the U.S.? I did, but it was like a kind of roundabout way of doing it. I did always want to work in New York City, funnily enough, even though I was in London. And I had worked my way up through the ladder in London and now various glossy magazines. I went from that supermarket tabloid weekly to New Woman. I became an editor-in-chief of a glossy young women's magazine called called Looks. I went to Elle. I went to InStyle. And then I went back to New Woman, the original glossy, as the editor-in-chief. So I had lots of different positions and I loved it so much. I loved being glossy magazine editor. It really was at a great time. And I went to the shows in Milan and Paris uh, when I was at Elle and it was very glamorous. And, you know, coming from a small place in Nowheresville, upstate New York. It was particularly glamorous and exciting. And all those experiences with interesting people, I finally really got to see that firsthand. So it was a wonderful time. And it was, again, like it was kind of pre-internet and of course things start to change. But during that time, magazines had a lot of power. Yeah. Um, And you were kind of the word on what was cool and what women turned to for like style advice and life advice. And there was something kind of I don't know, just exciting and powerful about that. So I ended up at New Woman uh, as editor-in-chief, and that was like the height of my trajectory. And I felt like I could do no wrong. I was like, I got all these great jobs, and it, I was performing well. I was respected. And that is actually when, I mean, after being sexually harassed, uh, the kind of hardest thing happened to me was when I actually got fired. From New Woman? Yes, uh, as the editor-in-chief. And that was a really hard fall because, like, it's a very prestigious thing to become the editor-in-chief. But it's also, like, you know, a possible downside of being in charge is that your head could roll if things don't go well. In your opinion, though, 
Because I think sometimes things don't go well, and that's obvious, but other times things are seemingly fine, but it's subjective and heads roll anyway. So did you see it coming, (laughs) or did you feel like it was completely unwarranted? Like, what was your perception of it? A little bit of both. I knew that the magazine sales were flagging. Um, We were like the fifth glossy women's magazine in the market, and it was a hard place to be in, and the internet was starting to kind of come about as a place where women were getting more content. They were certainly doing their shopping online. And, you know, we just didn't have as much potency out there. And every month I remember the sales would come in and I would be gripped with anxiety. And, you know, they go up and down. But, like, I knew the sales weren't what they wanted them to be. Not for one of trying. I had every idea that I was throwing at it and lots of different fun things. But... Yeah, it didn't work out. And I knew that the management was not behind me. I knew that too, which is a horrible place to be in. So I guess when it did happen, I remember it well. I was taken out for tea and told that I'd be dismissed. It was not like earth shattering, but it was still a shock because I am an overachiever. I've always succeeded and getting fired to me is like the greatest failure that you could ever experience. So yeah, it was stunning. And I was very, very traumatized by it. (laughs) And a lot of my friends and uh, people I respected told me, oh, this is going to be the best thing that has ever happened to you. And I really wanted to punch their lives out because (laughs) none of those people I think had been fired. So I don't know where they got off telling me that, you know, I really thought uh, I was done for and I wouldn't, have a career that this was it such a huge fall but it actually turned out that they were right but maybe not in the way I expected or even they expected um I was required to figure out how to get myself out of this hole I was lucky in that I did get a little bit of a settlement a severance so I had a bit of a cushion and the mistake I did make which I regret even now is that I right away decided to re-enter the workforce and find another job, just like the one I'd lost. Uh, That was wrong. I really wish I'd gone to Australia for a month. I've always wanted to go there. I had some money. I had time. It's a long time to get there, and it's a long time to get back, and I had time. And I wish I had done that. But did you get a job right away? No! Okay. So you technically still could have gone. (laughs) Yeah. No, I really... No, in the first few months, I got nowhere, and I could have used that time yeah. to, you know, take a break, take time out, take stock, you know, and not think about my career. Like it, it actually is good to have a reset point in your life, but I didn't do that. I applied for every job going that I thought I could possibly be appropriate for. And then, you know, what happened? I got rejected again and again and again and again. And I think I was not in the right mindset to be interviewing. I probably looked a bit desperate a, f- a former, like, colleague of mine who was younger than me actually beat me in a job application and I was just so destroyed by it I was like oh my god it was actually compounding my sense of failure and then I you know even did freelance work and my name was spelled wrong on one of my stories like it was just humiliating it's a hard thing to digest and I think so much of you know our worlds are tied up in titles, right? It's like, what does your name mean without the status of editor in chief? So right. 
Yeah, I had a real identity crisis. But what was really good about it that I now realize looking back is that I was forced to go out of my comfort zone and interview with all these different people and all these different disciplines. So I went to newspapers and newspaper supplements and I went to a wedding magazine. Like there are all these different kinds of media really that I had never really explored. I was in women's magazines, traditional women's magazines. And suddenly I was forced to get out of my comfort zone, meet other people, make new contacts. And I took up like what I did was um, work in the office and shifts as an editor for various uh, publications. And actually that turned out to be a great way to learn that I could be versatile, that I could, you know, do different kinds of things. I met different kinds of people. And within a year I had two competing job offers. So it doesn't always happen the way you want it to or how you expect it to. And if you force it, like I was trying to do, I must get a job. I must get a job. I must get a proper job with benefits. And it's just, I think not going to work that way. If you ease yourself into it and you accept that this is going to be fluid and that it isn't going to be concentrated work and it's not going to be high level work even, but it's just going to be you exploring. Often great things come out of that. And so that's how I ended up in New York because I happened to be freelance at the time and I was working at the Mail on Sunday um, for a supplement and that was a great job. My old colleague from L, who was the former editor-in-chief, was at the time the number two at Harper's Bazaar. She was the executive editor and she was pregnant and she wanted to know if I would cover her maternity leave. And because I was a free agent and I had nothing tying me down and I'd always wanted to work in New York City and my husband's freelance, or he's now my husband, but my boyfriend at the time, I thought, yeah, this is great. I'm going to do this. And you can take a leap and have an adventure when you're not stuck in a kind of, I guess, conventional rut. If you're like a little bit more fluid and a little bit more accepting of new ideas, they can lead you to something even more exciting. So I ended I up in yeah. So I, I ended up in New York City in uh, I think it was 2006 at the end of 2006, working for Glenda Bailey at Harper's Bazaar, and I was there for about a year, and that was unbelievably exciting and thrilling and everything I kind of expected it to be, like kind of high pressure and. You know, it it was exciting, and I met great people there too. And and so I really, but only looking back do I think I really realize that getting fired is what led to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's so funny. Like I didn't realize about this Harper's Bazaar stint until like I was obviously researching your background for this talk. And Glenda was my first boss too, at Mary Claire. Really? I think, wait a minute, were you in the accessories department? Is that right? <laughs> I think we have discussed this. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Maybe that's why we're connected. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So how do we get to the post? Right. So actually, here's another example of all contacts are good contacts, and you don't even know if they're working for you behind the scenes. You sometimes don't even know. That's true. That, so you're not even always an active agent and getting yourself a new job. And those are the best kind of jobs to get, by the way. That doesn't happen every day. But I was looking for a new opportunity because I was only at Harper's Bazaar as a kind of, you know, a freelancer trying to fill in. And I wanted something permanent. We love New York. And it just so happened that The Post was launching a weekly glossy magazine called Page Six Magazine. My British contacts happened to recommend me to the editor-in-chief, whose deputy was a Brit. 
And so he knew people in the UK who knew me. I didn't know him. But anyway, I was called in and they interviewed me and they liked me and they offered me the job pretty quickly. And I was like, this is incredible. I get to launch a magazine for The Post, which is a hugely iconic New York brand. And of course, I read the paper every day when I was at Harper's Bazaar. I was thrilled to be asked to do this job. And it really was the best job, I think, of my career because I got to do a magazine about New York City, which is the world's most exciting city. And it was such an interesting time. It was pre um, the crash, the economic crash. So New York had it going on. And (laughs) for the day and also pre-pandemic, anything pre-economic crash and also pre-pandemic is like perfect timing, basically. Yes. Yes, I, I was lucky enough to be there 2006, 2007, and then things took a turn. But it was a great time doing a weekly magazine, the pressure of doing a startup, hiring a team, figuring out a vision. It was very um, high profile, of course. Like Gawker was um, a big deal at the time, and they were critiquing my every issue. And there was a blogger writing a memo to Margie with her like response to every issue that I put out there. I was a bit shocked by it. Like, you know, it's not like that in London. It's a bit more, I don't know, gentlemanly, ladylike. <laughs> when you work in sort of that genre of media, do you feel the need to like know every single thing that's going on at every single second? Like the pressure of just not getting scooped on something? How does that feel? Yeah, you learn to live with it because you can't keep up with everything. Like you just cannot know everything that's going on, first of all. And especially if you're in charge. You don't have time to go to every event and hear everything that's being said at dinner tables, but you have to have a good team of people who are connected and out there and who just tell you stuff. And you have to, you rely entirely on your team to do the work for you, but you have to train the team to be looking for the things you want. So I worked a lot with my team telling them the kind of stuff we wanted. They were so bright and brilliant and they really, I mean, some of the people that I hired are doing incredible things now. So I'm pretty proud of that. And I was proud of the product that we put out there. And we did get received very well. People love the the magazine. So it was a real highlight in my career to be able to do that. Even with the pressure, even with the, the critics on Gawker, you actually, you know, you learn to handle that. That was actually not a bad thing to go through either because it's just, that was a microcosm of what we have now with social media being so exposing. That's true, but did you ever experience where, like, the person you were writing about actually contacted you and was like, WTF, how could you write that? (laughs) No, actually, funnily enough, and that's why I like to to stay anonymous. You know, the editors behind the scenes, there's a reason their names aren't on the stories. (laughs) (laughs) You can't reach us. Actually, you can. We have, obviously, you know, if there are issues of a story, we must get involved and we take responsibility. But if someone's just annoyed, you know, we don't usually take the flack for that. I I have great respect for my writers. They are in the fray every day. It's been tough for writers. Yeah. It really oh, has been. I think it's pretty brutal, actually. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm a little alarmed by some of what they have to go through and almost to the point where I would actually recommend people not be on Twitter because it's toxic and very, you know, I know in the early days of Twitter and I have some friends who got work out of it, book deals, they made great friends. I don't know how much real productive stuff is happening there anymore. It feels just like a brawl 
a very public brawl where people score points now. And you can end up playing to your audience on Twitter as opposed to your New York Post audience who are buying your content, who are clicking on your website on a frequent basis, who like what we do, who understand it, who appreciate it. That's who you should be writing for, not like scoring points on this social media platform where people just want to bring you down and tear you apart. I don't understand it. You're also creating free content for someone who's not paying you. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you raise great points. And my opinion has certainly changed over the years. And if I were a journalist, I think I would be more of a voyeur of just watching to see what's happening and making sure that my finger is on the pulse of that, but definitely not putting the content out there. You know, certainly, I mean, you could tease something and send them right back to your site, but definitely not just for free. I agree. Uh, In fact, voyeur is a good way of putting it. That's how I use it. I now just use it passively to see. It's almost like a good news feed. You know, something's breaking. It's good to have. Like, you'll know about it first on Twitter. For sure. Or the New York Post. (laughs) Wow. No, of course. Let's talk a little bit about your schedule because I think it's interesting for people to understand your work schedule is not like a regular Monday through Friday job. I'm a Sunday editor, so I work Tuesday to Saturday. Uh, My week kind of starts slow, and it builds each day as we plan the issue. Uh, Friday is a tough day, but Saturday is the toughest. It goes the quickest, though, because you're on deadline. You're putting an issue out. You get up at 6.30, and you have to get the paper done in 11 hours. So you wake up not necessarily even knowing what's on your front page, what's in your paper, Uh, You have to kind of, and I, as a control freak, find this a little hard. I did it first. You know, it's like, God, I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. But you have to learn to think on your feet, trust your instincts, and know that you're going to do the best you can. Uh, Have a good team who communicates and you can kind of do things quickly, especially now that we're all working from home. That's that's been tricky. But I stay up till one in the morning because we have different editions of the paper. We have four editions of the paper. And, you know, I can change the front page up till 1230 at night, wow. which is a blessing and a curse because I pray many nights. Nothing else happens. Happens. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the thing. Honestly, I'm stressed listening to you. I mean, so when Saturday rolls around, how do you, you wake up and you're just like, you have to do it all over again. Yeah. I'm taking a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you love the work, but like, it's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I compare it a little bit to like giving birth once a week. You like, (laughs) but you gestate for five days and then, you know, it gets heavier and heavier and then you're like, oh, it's out. And then you got to do it all over again the following week. And yeah, but it is actually my favorite day is Sunday because I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, it's over. It's all a dream. It was all a dream. And then the paper appears on, you know, in front of my house and there it is, that thing that I worked on I produced with my team and then I can see how the stories do online. I can see that in real time on Saturday too. But there's something really satisfying like you have it once a week. I think it would be much harder to do the daily. I the daily is every day. That kind of same kind of pressure. Uh although yeah and there's something special to have like, oh we've got the once a week special with like bigger reads and splashier stories. So I don't know. I quite like the schedule. I just, you know, I think actually the worst day is Friday because you're prepping 
for this thing that's going to happen. You have no idea. It's better to be in the moment than anticipating the moment, I think. I think what's so interesting, so Margie's husband is an amazing author. Let's talk about Black Child. I mean, how many books does he have now? Well, he's written two. two. But how long his birth process is versus your birth process. Right. Like, you give birth every week, and then his is like, (laughs) Years. It could be years. I mean, honestly, he started out as an author when we met. We were 26 when we met. We met at Take a Break, the magazine that I first worked for. And he was the puzzle editor, and I was the features editor. And I knew he wanted to be an author then. And uh, three years later, he decided to go for it. But it did take 11 years to finally get published. Uh, Black Chalk, his book, is now a cult hit. And it's been optioned by Warner Brothers and... He's got another book that was really well-received and it sold well called Gristmill Road. And he's in the process of getting the third one out. So, yeah. Uh, but we have incredibly different – I can't believe how different publishing is from newspapers. But that's my point. It's like his process and world. Like, yeah. I picture you both in bed. He's <laughs> writing. You're editing. And you're like polar opposite worlds, worlds apart think- as far as like what you're doing. Except for that we both love words immensely. Yeah. We've always loved words. And I read his stuff and I give him, you know, my feedback and he, I think, appreciates it and knows that I know what I'm talking about. Um, so we have a, a very kind of uh, symbiotic relationship that way. But I'd say he's a hell of a lot more patient than me. I could really? not. <laughs> but Lisa, you've written a book and I know you like to get action quickly and yet you managed to put a book out and you saw it come out as a hardback, you saw it come out as a paperback, and now you're doing it as a brand extension. So talk about like a long-term passion and pursuit. So No, I don't get credit for that. I'll tell you why. First of all, Chris, <laughs> Chris is 11 years, like he was perfecting it and perfecting it and perfecting it. I was more like, this is good enough. This is good. I got it on paper. It's I've edited it. It's fine. It's good. It's good enough. Some people will like it. Maybe some people won't. That's fine. But right. I don't think that I have the writing integrity that I know he has or that a true author. I don't consider myself like a real author. I'm like a fake author. Like, he's like a real author. Um, yeah. So I think it's different. And I have enormous respect for the diligence and the patience mm-hmm. and the care that goes in. Yeah. Like, Really telling that story in a way yeah. that is so profound. I was like, this sentence is good enough. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. It's fine. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, he's fastidious about just making it perfect. It matters that much to him. So, and it, yeah, in tabloid world, you, we do our very best, but there's a deadline and you got to do it, got to get it out. So, but yeah, I agree. I also am in awe of his talents and his ability to stick with it because it's, it's yeah, tough. <laughs> it's, it's really admirable. But let's talk about your admirable project, this pro bono storytelling <laughs> consultancy for women. What made you start this? I am fascinated in the art of storytelling and I, you know, I'm more than just a tabloid editor. I like helping individuals tell their stories too. And this enables me to kind of fulfill something in me that I enjoy doing, working with female entrepreneurs. I also coach young kids on how to tell their stories through their personal essays for college. I do that too. But I just love 
showing people how they have a story in them, they have a message they want to communicate and how to bring that out in them. That is actually kind of a joy for me and helping people grow and learn the art of storytelling is, it's still a fun. I think it's interesting because we've spoken before about these passion projects and things that, you know, when you take a skill set and you extrapolate it out to become the same but different, like taking the skills and serving them for a different purpose, I think it's such a natural transition for you. Yeah, absolutely. Storytelling has become a commodity, actually. But it's interesting to hear people recognizing it as such. And, you know, young people really knowing about their brand and their story and their message. But we have less time than ever to get our messages across and people need to know how to do it right. There's not knowing how to do it. And then there's also not wanting to do it. Like let someone else do it who enjoys doing it. Because I think a lot of this is torturous for people because they don't have the vision to see it clearly. But then an outsider who has the skill right. set can really, you know, visualize it for them. I think that's hopefully what journalists are good at. They know the thing that is going to make you interesting to people who don't know you. It's often like the human story behind a product uh, and what fuels someone's passion, their origin story, all the things you're actually asking me about, what drives somebody. So interesting. But I think that most of what I see, the press releases I get, are too long, are too verbose, And they don't get to a point. They're trying to do too much. And so I just click delete. And I don't even know if that's the way to sell a story necessarily. It's through contacts. It's through getting to know a journalist. It's it's through honing a relationship with a journalist who, you know, you take out to lunch and then you share stuff with and you build up a kind of rapport. And then you kind of say, hey, I'm going to give you an exclusive, you know, and hopefully that exclusive is of value to the journalist. And then they might do something for you that's a bit more of a puff piece because you're a source worth keeping. So it's actually developing that kind of relationship. And I think, Lisa, you are excellent at that as a brand manager. You are very, very good at knowing what a story is and what will appeal to a journalist. I mean, I even was sold on your own daughter's business as a story. (laughs) When you told me... She was making slime for her her school friends and making money off it. I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. And by the way, Lisa and her family are the most entrepreneurial people out there. Everybody's got like a side hustle going on, even her own daughter. (laughs) Oh, my God. For the record, I was not even pitching you that story. You just were like, I didn't know about this trend. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's happening. You're so enthusiastic and you have so many good ideas that it's like you're selling ideas all the time. So I don't think you you, I don't think you realized that you were selling me an idea. (laughs) Well, thank you. But the best, best part of that New York Post shoot in my apartment was Sabrina. And she was like, I don't know, like nine or something. The photographer, I don't remember the woman's name. She was an older woman, clearly professional. And she told Sabrina to mix the slime together to make a bigger piece. And Sabrina was like, if I do that, it's going to become an ugly color. And she's like, no, 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 just mix it. I need it to be longer. Like she wanted Sabrina to like stretch it. I remember, yeah. And Sabrina was like arguing with her. She's like, you can't do that. You can't mix those colors. It's going to become brown. And she, (laughs) she made her do it. And sure enough, it became this horrible green brown. And then the photographer was like, Oh, it doesn't look good anymore. And she's like, I know, I told you. (laughs) I told you. Like mother, like daughter. 
She so, knew. I mean, seriously, it's so funny. <laughs> so Margie, how do you ultimately want to leave your mark? What makes me happy is helping people realize they have a story. You know how they say everybody has a book in them? I actually don't know if I believe that, but everyone, <laughs> please, please don't everyone write a book because the world can't handle it. But everyone definitely has a story. I love helping people realize that. It's actually quite empowering and profound to realize that you are unique and that you have a story unlike anyone else's. And me helping people realize that is a joy. So I hope I can meet as many people who need to have their stories told and help them do that. Well, I love that. And I love that you already just helped me think of this podcast episode title because now I've got it down pat. I think that this is going to become very exciting. And I love how you're straddling both worlds. Your day job is so important and this side hustle. But I am curious, though, given the schedule, do we do this on like Monday night when you're like done, but the week hasn't gotten bad yet? Like when does the pro bono stuff actually fit in? to the schedule? Yeah, it's <laughs> Sunday, Monday. That's it. But you know about that. You use all your available free time to do your extracurricular stuff. I know. It's getting, I don't know. I really wonder like what people do who don't have extracurricular stuff. (laughs) I mean, I guess, you know, the laundry would get done faster and like the dishwasher. Like there's things definitely that that could get done. But I came down here to do this with you. And as I was leaving, I said to Sabrina, and I'm like, by the way, if you could fold the laundry while I'm downstairs with Margie, that would be like amazing. <laughs> Did she say she'd do it? She didn't answer me. So oh, okay. Well, let's see. Let's... <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, listen, I think it goes back to if you're passionate about something, you really don't care how much time it takes. You don't care when you do it. You do it because you love it. Yeah. And I also have to say, I'm a big believer in, weirdly, sometimes the more you do, the more you get done. For so. Sure. You actually get uplifted and energized by having extra projects that enliven you and keep you excited and give you a sense of potential. And that energizes you and enervates you for other stuff. So, I mean, of course you can overdo it, but I really recommend everyone have little extracurricular work that they enjoy because it will just actually fuel. I think I'm better at my job because I'm engaged with other stuff. I'm not monofocused, you know, that's not good for a journalist. I completely agree. You said it perfectly. Margie, this was awesome. It's so good to talk to you. It's lovely to see you. And I hope we can do lunch soon in person. I mean, I'm double vaccinated, so I am game. Me too. All right. We'll set it up. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.